Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. God, when we read a passage of scripture like this and imagine ourselves into what was happening at this time, we're just amazed, as the children of Israel were as well. And we see your faithfulness in our lives today. I pray that as we look at this song by the sea, that um, you, through your Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, and that we would be able to put ourselves in their place in this time, 3,500 years ago, and that we can learn something, something for ourselves about what it means to follow your son Jesus in this day and time. Amen. Thank you, May. And, you know, I and Sunridge love you guys, too, the Lauras and your daughters. And so you guys can have a seat. Welcome, everybody. You guys, you guys awake? Smack your neighbor. Oh! So uh, whether you're joining us online or right here on our campus, I want to say welcome to Sunridge. And if you don't know me, my name's Britt. I serve the church here as the lead pastor. And I would love to get to know you. In fact, this is a great Sunday to be a guest uh, right after our service today in uh, room 109 off of our main hallway. We have a little short welcome. And it's a chance for us to meet you, for you to meet our staff and me, and we'll just hang out for about a half an hour. Don't be afraid. We don't do anything weird there. And uh, we just love to get to know you, welcome you to Sunridge. You know, Corey Ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And if anyone should have been in a hurry, it should have been Moses and the Israelites, because right now we're studying, if you're just joining us, the life of uh, one of the most well-known people in the Bible, Moses. And he is the man that God used to free the Israelites from the slavery that they were in in Egypt. And where we are in the story is that they've just narrowly, and I think we can all say miraculously, uh, escaped what was the most powerful army in that region of the world. And now they're beginning a journey into the Sinai Desert. So Moses... He has a lot to do. He's got to get organized. He has all these people who have just crossed the Sea of Reeds, and now they've got to head out into the wilderness. They, they have to get organized, plan ahead, and that's really important work that needs to be done. And, of course, the Israelites have a lot to do as well. It's getting ready for this huge journey. But they pause. It doesn't say how long, but this passage, uh, Exodus 15, verses 1 through 21, is often called the Song by the Sea, or in some of your Bibles it might say the Song of Moses and Miriam. And it is really a duet by the brother and sister band, Moses, Miriam, and the Israelites. Have you guys heard of them? I'm sure you've seen them because they play in a lot of our local wineries here. 
this song is a retelling of God's rescue from what has just happened, their escape from the Egyptian army on the, on the coast of the Sea of Reeds. And it doesn't say if they sang in harmony or unison or separately, but we see the whole company of Israelites join in to this song. And uh, Moses starts it off. So among all of his other talents, we see that Moses can also lead worship. Verse 1 of Exodus 15, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. So guys, I know a lot of you are uncomfortable singing. I see you. (laughs) Waiting for it to be over. Moses, one of the greatest men of all time, is leading worship. Something to think about. The song depicts God as a warring soldier who battles for them. It actually calls him that in verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And then they sing of God's accomplishments as the one who fought for them. Verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he's hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. And the deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Like a rock. They were there, and then they weren't. Now, I don't know about you guys, but often I hear modern songs, and I wonder, what what is the story behind that song? What what does the song even mean? What are they singing about? Like Stairway to Heaven. Do you know that that song was penned by Robert Plant, and it was a critical look at how fruitless and vain it is to live in in a materialistic way. You can't take it with you. To heaven. Now it's up to you to figure out what a bustle in your hedgerow means. Then there's American Pie. You guys know that song? Don McLean wrote that song. It was really biographical, he says, about his experience of the 60s with the assassinations of the Kennedys, Martin Luther King, the Vietnam War, and then there was that tragic plane crash in which uh, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper died, and that was the day the music died according to Don McLean. And I invite you to do your own research on songs like Wild Cherries, Play That Funky Music, White Boy. (laughs) But in the song by the sea, the meaning needs to be explained. We need to know what it is that they're saying. So in verse 6, when they sing, Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. You know, in the Hebrew mind, the right hand and the left hand have different, different symbolism. The left hand is weak, and it, it represents decay and death. But the right hand represents strength and honor, rational thinking. It's the fighting hand. It's the hand that you would shake hands with or strike hands to make a bargain. It's the hand that you would strike somebody with in a fight. So when, it, when, when they sing that this victory came from the right hand of God, it means there was might and strength and honor and righteousness shown by God in this act. And his right hand shattered them like a clay pot, just broke them apart. And then, look at this, when is the last time you used nostrils as a lyric? It's in verse 6, or verse 8. By the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. You know, the, the scene there was like 
these winds came and it parted the water and the children of Israel walked across on dry ground. And this, the nose here re reveals the emotions of God. In English, when we say someone has a long nose, we're saying that they're a liar, like Pinocchio, right? But in Hebrew, the, the idea of a long nose means patience. So long-suffering really comes from being long-nosed in the Hebrew mind. And to be short-nosed is the opposite. It means to be impatient, even wrathful. So, so to say that the wind came from God's nostrils is saying that God had grown impatient with what was happening to his children. He had had enough, and he brought righteous anger against the Egyptian army. Then they sing of this powerful image of God as the greatest of all gods in verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Because for the Israelites, this is a transformative moment. Remember, they lived in, a, in such a polytheistic world. And that world, as they experienced it with all these Egyptian gods, all they knew was defeat and opposition, and lack of opportunity, and slavery. They had these gods, in their minds, imposed upon them no voice. They were powerless, and they're surrounded by this culture of all these other gods. But remember, in the, in the plagues, God defeated those Egyptian gods. We talked about that. And then here, he ultimately defeats them in drowning them in the sea. So in this first part of the song, they're relishing this victory that God brought. They're praising God. They're giving him all the glory. And then probably the most important line in the song of all, why he did this in verse 13, in your failing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. And we've talked about the word redemption before. It's one of the best words left in human language and one of my favorite words in the Bible. Redeemed means to buy somebody as a slave, to redeem them and set them free. And Moses says or sings that this is why God did this. His unfailing love led him to redeem, to free the Israelites. I don't know for you, but does that language sound kind of familiar? Because that's the language of the gospel. The Bible talks about us being in slavery to sin, right? And in that slavery, we are subject to the culture of, of sin. We're, we're, we're subject to other gods that are anti-Yahweh, and we have a godless culture and system. But Jesus defeated that sin, and he redeemed us. That's the gospel. Now, up until verse 13 in the song, it's all past tense, what has happened in their immediate past, what God has done, and they're grateful. They're ecstatic, and maybe, maybe that's the way you talk about your salvation experience as something that Jesus did when you first became a Christian. When I became a Christian, Jesus saved me. He rescued me 
from my sin. Maybe still you say that way. It's like, you know, God, he, he saved me from my old life. And it's, it's usually past tense. But now in verses 13 through 17, the song starts to look to the future, what God will do, the promises that, that he makes. So remember that God doesn't just redeem us from our past, but also our future. We talk about salvation too often as something that's only in our past. It's past tense. But the truth of the gospel is that we're not just saved from something, we're saved to something. See, Moses and the, and, and the Israelites have been saved from slavery in Egypt, but they're saved to something else, right? What God has planned for them in their future, a place, a place to be a people, a place to thrive, and then also a whole new way of living under the covenant of God. The promise here is that God will establish a place and a way of worship. Verse 13, you will guide them into your holy dwelling. And in verse 17, they have no idea that God will at one time establish this place of worship, something that the, the Israelites that are alive at this time, they've been denied their whole life. They've been denied a place of worship. In, in chapter 15, verse 17, they sing kind of like with hope. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. What is that mountain going to be? Mount Sinai. The place, Lord, you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. If you remember, Pharaoh denied them even the option to go into the wilderness and worship for three days. But now they're singing of a dwelling in the future, which is the tabernacle. And several hundred years later, it becomes the temple. It's their place to worship. And when, when Moses calls it a dwelling, it's not, it's not like a church building. See, under the covenant that we have today as, as followers of Jesus, under the new covenant that he brought, God meets with us anywhere. You know that verse that says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. But at that time, God met with people in a specified way and in a specified place. It was the temple or the tabernacle where, where God dwelt. And they had to go there. They had to be in his presence there. They couldn't do it in another way. So they had this longing in them for a place and a time to worship. And even though it's much later that these formal practices develop kind of reminds me of COVID. Guys remember that? We didn't meet. We felt like we couldn't. And didn't you have this longing in you to be with your church and to be with God's people? The results here go far beyond what God has planned for Israel in terms of their personal welfare. There's also a promise that all the surrounding nations will hear of God's greatness, of what he did. Verse 14, the nations will hear and tremble. And again, this, there's a whole bunch of future tense here. He will, they will be, will, 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 not did. And the promise here is that through God's people, other nations around them will hear of God's greatness, of what he did, how he rescued them, which is what we do as followers of Jesus today, right? The world hears of our rescue, of God's greatness 
by the stories that we tell to our friends and our family and our community. And then it wraps up with a refrain by the ladies, verse 20. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. So Miriam has another side group, the Hebrew Supremes. And she even plays tambourine. I don't know if you noticed that or not. Do you remember Davy Jones used to play the tambourine and he would hit it on his hip? I was like in, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade. And I used to put on my monkey's album and I got a tambourine and I tried to emulate that hip thing. It's probably why my hips hurt today. I want to give special attention to what what just got said there at the end of the song. Because as I've said before, like the Bible, like sometimes it's so economical in what it gives us, right? It gives us very little of the picture. It leaves out a lot more than it puts in. But sometimes you see the Bible go really deep and like expand, like wow, all this detail. And so when it does that, it's like you should slow down and go like, what, what is happening here? What is, what is the writer trying to tell us by giving us so much detail? And here, that's, a, that's what happens here. You see women playing a significant role. Possibly, they're the grand finale in this worship moment. And this is also the first time that Miriam is named or mentioned by her name. Previously, she's only referred to as Moses or Aaron's sister. But here she's named as the one who's leading in worship, and she's referred to as a prophet, one who speaks for God. So I just want to like, just take a little sidebar here that it says something about how important women's voices are in the church today. Not just for harmony's sake, and not just to play tambourine, but really, really important to our spiritual welfare. And just like female voices add harmony and uh, blessing to our worship, they do the same in theology and perspective. So that's a part of Moses' life we're going to look at today. And next week, we're going to see how they head out into the wilderness. And, uh, but today, I wanted you to see how they paused after crossing the waters and escaping the Egyptians. And of course, what I typically do, if you know, you're new to Sunridge, is we always stop somewhere along the way, sometimes in the middle, but typically at the end. And we say, you know, so what does this mean to you and me? Today, what does what happened 3,500 years ago have to do with you and me living in Temecula Valley in 2023? Does it mean that sometime in the future, if God parts the sea for you, that you should stop and write a song and finish it with a female solo? Well, maybe, but I think what God has for us to learn in this passage is what I talked about in the very beginning, about our busyness and our hurriedness in life today, and I'll tell you why. But before I do, I think, won't you agree with me that everybody is busy? Moms are busy. Most of you moms are working and being mom at home, and dads are busy too with their careers and coaching soccer and little league, and of course, moms coach too, right? And your neighbors are busy. Your whole neighborhood's so busy, you don't even talk, you just wave at them just before the garage door goes down. 
and dentists are busy, and teachers are busy, and Marines are busy, and CEOs are busy, and PTA members are busy. Our kids are even busy. They wake up, they eat a bowl of cereal or a Pop-Tart, and then they're off to school, then they have practice for some kind of sport, then you go to dinner at Chick-fil-A, which Bob told us a couple months ago that you're going to waste eight and a half minutes in line there. And uh, then they have homework and maybe youth group. And all of you young couples, you're busy trying to get ahead and trying to save. And you know who's the most busy of all? Retirees. Just ask them. So if you're right on the edge of retirement and you're looking forward to that moment when you can just, you know, kick back, relax, and read a book, talk to a retiree. They don't even have time. And you know, Jesus was busy too. And there's nothing wrong with being busy. I mean, if you translate that, it means productive, meaningful, purposeful. But it's hurry. It's the killer. And hurry is slowly strangling faith from Christians. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the church he established in the city of Ephesus, in, Ephesus, in Ephesians 5.15. He said, be very careful then how you live, not as, wise, but, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. You know, the King James version of the Bible translates that Redeeming the time. It's literally redeeming it, redemptive. To be redemptive about how we use our time. To redeem or rescue our opportunities and our seasons and our time. A guy named Mike Zigarelli did a study of 20,000 Christians from all over the world. It was titled The Obstacles to Growth Survey. And in it, he was he identified busyness as a major distraction in people's spiritual life. And here was his hypothesis. I'm going to put it on the screens and read it to you. He said, number one, Christians are assimilating into a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle starts all over again. Can I get an amen? You say, what does this have to do with the song of Moses and Miriam, Brit? Well, as I studied this passage, as we're going through the life of Moses, and the, the, the fancy word here is exegete, uh, I, thought, I thought about you, and I thought about me, and I thought, there is no way anyone, myself included, can do this without one thing happening. So lots of times I like to have one big idea, and my message here it is, ruthlessly, Eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And the emphasis here is on ruthless. And I want to tell you that I shamelessly stole that phrase from John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. 
And if you haven't read it, I would recommend it. It's, on the, it's included in your resources on your note sheet. Now, there are a couple of reasons why I think we need to do this, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. Number one, so you have time to worship. So you have time to worship. How many of you, don't raise your hands, would say, when you get busy, when you get hurried, the first thing to go is your spiritual life. And how many of you would say, thinking about that, some of your worst moments as a dad or as a mom or as a husband or a wife or an employee or as a leader or as a coach or even as a pastor, your worst moments have occurred under the burden of hurry. You know, that period in your life where you're trying to cram 10 pounds of stuff into the five-pound sack of your life. And I sanctified that for you. How many of you would say that conversely, when you're taking time for your spiritual life, things are so much better for you? Some of you would say, well, you know, Britt, I worship in private. I do my own thing. Well, that's great because we see private worship in the Bible. David, Paul, Jesus, they all spent time in solitude with God, alone with God. But private worship is not a substitute for corporate worship. You know, Moses could have told the people, you know, we've got to hurry along here, folks. There's a potential that the Egyptians could regroup and come after us. We still have a long journey ahead of us, so we need to get organized. So here's the plan. Everyone get up a little earlier tomorrow and have your own private worship moment for what God did and then get packed up. Or better yet, why don't you do this? Get up early, get loaded up, but while you're walking, sometime along there, just have a little worship moment on your own because we need to hurry. That would have been what I was telling, I would be telling them. No, they paused and they worshiped together. Do you know that regular worship was an essential part of the first century church? Here's the Apostle Paul writing in his letter to the Christians in Colossae. In 3.16, he says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing with gratitude in your hearts. You see here, Paul says, Encourage and teach one another. Sing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And you're doing this together because the message of Christ is richer when it's experienced together. Then the writer of Hebrews in 1024, he says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on, spur another, one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see the giving and receiving in these, in these words from the author. To encourage. To spur one another on. He even says consider it. That is to give pre-thought. To how you're going to contribute encouragement. And the spurring on of others. So it isn't just about ourselves. It's about what we do for others. And then he even just blatantly says it. Don't neglect meeting together. You see that. And would you say that God, private worship is important, but God 
does things in corporate worship that can only be accomplished when his people are together. Would you say that even, the, even though a podcast sermon or, uh, you know, an online church are all great things, but you can't live off that because it's missing something. Something that can only happen when God's people are together and they pause together. When I read the lyrics to the song by the sea, I can see how they, when the Israelites, they sang it together. And that was exponentially more powerful than if Moses had handed out a private devotion for them to consider as they walked along the way, right? This is powerful. Together they recounted the details of how God had intervened. They, they expressed the hopes of their future together. And then having the ladies bring it home at the end, that's powerful. It increased their gratitude. It reminded them of the things that they wouldn't have thought of all on their own. It bolstered their faith and it prepared them for what was ahead. And it could only happen together. You guys are familiar with like end of the season sports banquets? Yeah, yeah, we all have them and you get together. You have some really tough piece of meat that everyone overpaid for. But you tell stories at the banquet. You, you relive the things that happened during the season. You give out awards. You have a good time together. What if, what if after, you know, the Miami Dolphins win, uh, you know, the Super Bowl next year, that, um, just imagine with me here, um, after that happens, you know, uh, the coach says, hey, you guys, it was a great season. Have a celebratory moment on your own on the way home today. We're not going to gather in the city of Miami. Just enjoy it. That would be so weird. Because something happens when we celebrate together. When we sing the song, Blessed Be Your Name, which our band did, you know, as the opener today. By the way, do you know what that song is about? It was written by Matt and Beth uh, Redman after 9-11. And they were just trying to process what had happened. Here's the lyrics again in case you forgot them. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place, though I walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, I've sung those words in this church from every situation of life. When my life was amazing, when I had lots of money in the bank, and all my kids were dialed and uh, on the right road, so to speak. I sang, I've sung them in despair. Uh, I've sung them in times in my life where I just feel so enriched beyond my dreams. And also I've sung them in the midst of the loss of dear loved ones and family and friends. I've sung them in your presence at peak moments in the life of this church. And I've sung them at some of, in, in some of my lowest moments as your pastor. When I sing those words with you, I hear your voices. 
I see your faces and I know your stories, it has a powerful effect on me. That's, what, that's corporate worship. Do you know why wolves howl? It's a myth that they're howling at the moon. And it's not to celebrate a kill, because that would be really dumb. They just got food, and now they sing really loudly for everyone to come find them where their food is. That's not why they do it. And did you know that, that wolves have different howls? They can recognize the difference, and, and they can hear other wolves howling from six to seven miles away. Now, when you hear howling at night, it's not a behavior directed at the moon. Instead, it's, it's a social rally call. It calls the pack together. And that howling can even help a lost wolf find their way back. In fact, a, a, a lost wolf separated from its pack uses a different kind of howl. It's a shortened call that rises in pitch. And when, the, when it's answered by the pack, that wolf then responds with a deep or in an even howl. It's a different howl to inform the, other, the pack of, where, of its location. So I'm not saying we're like wolves here, or even when we worship that some of you sound like you're howling. <laughs> Although some of you do sound like you're in pain at times. What I'm saying is you should eliminate hurry from your life so you have time to worship with other like-minded people. That's one takeaway here. Last, eliminate hurry from your life so that you have time to give thanks. So you have time to give thanks. The first thing to go in the hurried life is gratitude. Isn't that true? I don't know about you, but when I'm in a hurry, I don't notice that Cindy changed her hair color or she got a new top or she took all day to make my favorite beef roast and what I call the 50-50 mashed potatoes, which is 50% potato and then 50% butter and cream cheese. <laughs> when I'm hurried, I don't notice that in the picture that my granddaughter drew of me, that she has captured every little detail of me. She's put a few sprigly little hairs there. She caught my bowed legs. Don't look at them right now. <laughs> or that she's the girl in the picture and we're at McDonald's. That happened. I don't know how much, I, I don't notice when I'm hurried how much work my staff has put into an event or a project. And I don't see the favors my kids do for me in the middle of their chaotic lives. And I don't see the ways God has blessed me. I'm just on to the next thing. You know, it's not like us hurried people that we don't see the box get checked. We do. The flowers are planted. They're fertilized. They're watered. And there they are. They look good. Stand back. Done. But do we really pause and look at them? Or do we actually try to smell the roses? Because that's the sweet part. You know, Moses and the Israelites could have just gathered around Moses in a circle, taken a knee for a minute, prayed the Lord's Prayer, and then jumped up and said, let's go take it to the Philistines. Instead, they paused. Maybe for a few days. 
maybe even a week, to put together a song, a musical, with instrumentation, to say thanks, to express gratitude in such a detailed and specific way. Let me take you back to the Colossians passage. What is it that we sing about? Where does this worship come from? Let the message of Christ dwell among you as richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with what? With gratitude in your hearts. And then in another letter by Paul in Ephesians 5.19, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know you see it. Gratitude. Give thanks. With one another. Together. This is what we do when we worship. And isn't it true that oftentimes we come into church, into God's presence, with God's people, often not thankful, under a pile, stressed out, hurried, distracted, and yet, because you took a moment to stop and to pause, to be together, worshiping and thanksgiving, doesn't that change your heart? Doesn't something happen because you did that? Our hearts are transformed. Our vision becomes clearer. We see what, together we see what we could not see alone. We become grateful, more grateful for what God has done, that he is doing. And often it happens through the testimony of others, by their presence. We howl together. You know, a misconception among Christians today is that worship and thankfulness are optional. Dependent upon our mood or our circumstances or our schedule, they're not. Giving thanks is actually a spiritual discipline. Notice the intentionality in these passages. Psalm 69, 30, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. 95, 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Look, I'm not, I'm not trying to pile guilt on you. This isn't about like, if you miss church next week, God's going to be really mad at you, and you're going you're to be doomed to a bad week. That is not what I'm saying. I'm trying to elevate our perspective on what God does with his people when we're together. It's not like, do this or you're in sin. But God's word is saying, intentionally practice these things. And when we come together to worship on Sunday, to lift God's name up together, we remember his rescue. And something happens in our heart that what comes out is gratitude. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And you know, I'm thinking of those wolves again. My, uh, I have three daughters they all love animals, and uh, one of them has a lot of dogs. It's like almost mental illness level of number of dogs, but she is like, she just has a huge heart. She always has, 
long time ago, uh, we were driving and we ran over a ground squirrel. She, and I went, whoa, and I turned the car because I tried to miss it, but probably actually hit it in doing that and uh, saw him bouncing in the road in the rear view mirror, little picture there. And, and she's in the back, she's like, what happened? I said, oh, I hit a squirrel. She goes, ah, and starts crying. I'm like, just be glad it wasn't a person. And she goes, we don't need more people in the world. We need more animals. So that's who she is. We, she has all these dogs. And if I howl around her dogs, they start howling with you. Do you, do you have dogs like this? They all come around and they start howling together. And uh, just about a month ago, we had a birthday party at her house. And our family started singing happy birthday uh, to the people that, you know, our family that was celebrating birthdays in that quadrant of our lives. And uh, all the dogs came around and started howling. So they were singing happy birthday with us. You might be saying I'm weird, but it's something you won't forget. So just like the children of Israel paused to worship, um, when we do that, God lets us see something that we would not have seen if we'd have just stayed on our own, if we hadn't gathered with God's people. There's something about his people coming together that allows us to see life through the lens of praise and worship. It elevates our spirit. It, it generates gratitude. It gives us a different perspective. It realigns our priorities. It creates an anticipation in us of what God is up to. And it kind of bolsters our spirit for what we're going to do on Monday, which is to wander out into the wilderness. None of that is possible if we're living a hurried life, if we don't stop to pause. And so that's why I say we have to be ruthless in eliminating hurry from all the things that keep us from doing it. Let's stand and howl together. What do you think? Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.